you look like a rodent and because you got no oh we started um welcome to <laughs> science and pictures presents science in podcast the podcast that takes the headache out of understanding peer-reviewed science uh as always my name is jared adelman joined by my co-host madison dix Yes, we are both here uh, for a bit of a different episode today because neither of us have actually prepared an article. Uh, instead, uh, in private conversations, sounds weird when you put it that Here's way. Skinny friends. <laughs> um, so Jared, as you can probably tell from episodes you've listened to, gets so excited about reading these peer-reviewed scientific papers. I get really excited about learning the information in them, but I don't come from a science background, so I've never had a class in how to find good scientific literature, how to read it, how to look at the different sections. And I'm betting a lot of you probably haven't had training either. So what we're doing today is a class literally for me by Jared about his process on how he finds these papers that are so interesting and exciting. The steps he takes in reading them, like what each section means, basically just a, a how-to on how to get learned when it comes to scientific peer-reviewed literature. I think we've already landed on the title of this episode to learn as well. Jared today, and I hope y'all are too. Yeah, learning is fun, or at least it should be. Um, learning is fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm a fantastic teacher, if you can't already tell. Um, yeah, you are. No, not really. But anyway. Um, I think we should call this episode Get Learned, by the way. That's what I said. You couldn't hear me, though. Oh, no. Okay, well, now it's my idea. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> This is already off to a great start. My subconscious um, hurt you. Hurt. Hurt. Hurt you. <laughs> I hope my subconscious did not hurt you. In fact, I'm still healing from it. Um, so you have uh, a series of questions I think you're going to ask me. Let's let's fire those away. I do. Here is my first question. Frequent listeners probably already know that when I look for a scientific paper, the first place I go is PNAS. P-N-A-S dot org. However, Jared has a plethora of other resources that I know he explores, and they are new to me. So, Jared, like, where where do you start? Is it Google? Like, where? Sometimes, well, actually, yeah, sometimes Google. I don't know if you iPhone nerds uh, are able to do this, but if I slide all the way to the left of my Android phone, I have just, like, a list of Google articles. And because I mostly look for sciencey stuff on the internet, it kind of recommends what you read most. So, sometimes all I have to do is scroll down that. I, again, I don't know if this works for iPhone users. No, um, we don't have that. Oh, well, okay. Let's, uh, <laughs> how many, what's the proportion of iPhone? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, for, for other instances, I will use, well, this is why I thought this question was kind of fun because I don't actually look at the scientific articles first. I use the science equivalent of a reputable news source, which is, oh. yeah. So that's going to be one of two websites that I will send to you. That's going to be Eureka Alert. Eureka Alert. Can you spell yes. that for me? E-U-R-E-K-A-L-E-R-T. It's a fun little portmanteau. Eureka Alert. Mm-hmm. And I will also use um, one called, this is much shorter, phys.org. Uh, P-H-Y-S. P-H-Y-S is not how I was going to spell it. <laughs> org. Okay. And there are others. I know that Nature, uh, which is a really reputable uh, peer-reviewed journal, has its own kind of thing. Science is also a huge journal that has theirs as well. Um, but both of these are kind of like where scientists go to make their work more known to the, the, the general public. So when you read the sort of press release about it, you're not quite getting into the huge jargony portion just yet. You're just getting into 
what's cool about the article. So Okay, so they do a little jargon corner for you. They make it a little more accessible right off the bat. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's not always completely accurate because it's like that. Sometimes it's sort of the uh, person who the scientist was telling about the article trying to sort of rephrase it in, in their own words. So don't take the big takeaways from this press release. It's sort of just, you know, what's cool about the science. And most of the time it's right, but it's been wrong enough for me to have to say that, you know, you can't just read this to get the article. Okay, so it's sort of like the advertisement for the article. Yeah. Take it at face value. Mm -hmm, exactly. Oh, try out the product for yourself. Okay, so then they have links in these articles to the actual papers. Is that right? Yes, on Eureka Alert, um, it's uh, listed by the DOI, which is basically like a science net link that brings you directly to, to the article. And in Fizz, it's usually right down at the bottom. Okay. So where should we explore today? Shall we start with Eureka Alert? I like Fizz a little bit more just in terms of like, I think the UI is in more better to look at. So let's go okay. with that one. Let's go. Fizz.org. I'm going there now on my iPhone, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> So what I'm seeing at fizz.org, the first things that pop up, we've got Russia deploys giant space telescope in Lake Baikal. Hey, we've been there. Not in the podcast. <laughs> we talked about some seals there. Yeah. Um, we've also oil in the ocean, photooxidides, photooxid, photooxid. Wow. What a word. Photooxidase. Photo. Wait. Days. We're just going to skip over that one. I don't know what that word is. See, that's another, that's, I think, ex is exactly illustrated my point of the scientists aren't the ones that write these. I think what the word they were meaning to go for was photooxidize. Okay. Oil so, in the ocean photooxidizes within hours to days, new study finds. Okay. Oh, so an, it and, becomes unusable as an energy source. I don't exactly know what photooxidizes means. I don't know if that makes it useless or makes it more harmful, but that's a good question that we could read if we read into that article specifically. All right. So we've also got spacewalkers take extra safety precautions for toxic ammonia and yeah. science, science, <laughs> study finds cancer cells may evade chemotherapy by going dormant. Google allows users to update the maps app with photos. That's boring. A protocol yeah. to explore entanglement dynamics via space-time duality. So here is our uh, next tip. If you only scroll through the kind of front page, then there's going to be, in my experience, a low chance that you're going to find something that really, really strikes your fancy. I would, at this point, get into the categories they list at the top of the page. Oh, um, thank you so much. Okay, I'm looking at the categories. We've got nanotechnology, physics, earth, astronomy and space technology, chemistry, biology, and other sciences. Other sciences is generally climate science and stuff. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so generally you and I always tend towards either climate science or biology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's I what's most interesting, to me anyway. Um, so, you know, let's, let's go with something exactly the same. What if I click on Earth? earth um that's just that's gonna be mainly kind of oh Geology. just kidding this is where the majority of client science is my bad oh, okay it's, it's like earth science that kind of stuff earth science what would you click on jared i generally go for biology because it's got um i evolution is my main thing i like evolution um oh, if you were evolution. to also go on eureka alert which we can check out as well they have oh, let's do it yeah they have a lot of categories as well in fact, I think like six more or so than Fizz does. 
All right, the categories I'm finding here. Oh, it's a different format. Yeah, so their categories are all the way at the bottom of the front page. Oh, bottom of the front page. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, also, a lot of the time you see articles with the exact same title posted between Fizz and Eureka Alert, which kind of goes to show that these two are frequented a lot by scientists. Okay, cool. I love, so they have news releases by subject, and Mm -hmm. uh, it's alphabetical, which is fun. Agriculture, archaeology, atmospheric science, biology, business and economics, ew, chemistry, (laughs) earth science, education, mathematics, medicine and health, policy and ethics, social behavior, social and behavior, Spanish, oh no, space and planetary, (laughs) unfortunately, technology and engineering. Okay. Rad. Okay, since we're both biology nerds, let's just like dig into our wheelhouse for this one. Let's click on... I'm going to go back to phys.org and I'm going to click on biology. All righty. All right. So you've picked your category. What's the next step, Jared? Uh, the next step is to read through the titles and see what jumps out at you. Okay. So in the biology section, I see evolution of ocean twilight zone creatures linked to global climate change. That sounds cool. I got to say the one that immediately jumped out to me was the SARS-CoV-2 jumped from bats to humans without much change. That sounds relevant. Let's go with that one. You sure? I'm sure. All right. Um, yeah, we'll click on it. Okay, we click. Oh, it's got a nice diagram. I don't know if I would call this a nice diagram, which is something I love about a lot of scientific papers. Um, there's a there's a Facebook group that, that you need to follow if you don't, which is science. Oh, you're that, yeah. Yeah. Wait. It's fantastic. Fans, though. It's called science diagrams that look like posts. Yes, I am a member of that group, but it's excellent. They're all real. <laughs> Every single <laughs> one of them. <laughs> oh, it's good. That. This okay, one. So this one, it has like a bat with like a purple bat signal that looks like a virus. And then there's some down arrows. Chain. That doesn't look too hot. Environment. And then we have a question mark bat and a non-question mark bat. Switch to different host species. Switch to different bat tissue. Selective change reduced... Yeah, I don't understand this. I don't either. <laughs> um, it At its basic, it looks like bat epidemiology, sort of like how a virus and its variants might transfer from bat to bat and how they might end up in us. It sounds like they're talking about a spillover event, which is basically how the vast majority of diseases actually can affect humans, which is when they jump from an an- another animal host to us. Okay. Now, based on what you're seeing so far, this, this interesting diagram... Um, would you automatically write this article off based on the diagram or would you continue reading? No. In fact, I don't usually spend this much time looking at the initial picture. Um, okay. Unless it's like really, really, really eye grabbing. But this one I looked at because it was awful and I thought that was funny. But the, I don't know. This is what I meant earlier in that it's completely subjective. Like if the initial interest in the, the link is enough to disregard the bad picture, then I will keep going. And this one about coronaviruses and humans, um, very, very relevant, and I want to know more about it. So in this case, I I would keep going. All right, let's keep going. Yeah. So the blurb we have here, the first paragraph, how much did SARS-CoV-2 need to change in order to adapt to its new human host? In a research article published in the Open Access Journal, PLOS Biology, Oster McLean Spiros Lytras at the University of Glasgow and colleagues show us that since December 2019, 
and for the first 11 months of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, there has been very little important genetic change observed in the hundreds of thousands of sequenced virus genomes. My first question is, why are they not calling it COVID-19? But I guess that's just because SARS-CoV-2 is kind of the more uh, epidemiology way that scientists like to say it. But either way, it, it must it's, be. yeah, it's the exact same virus. But anyway, keep yeah, going. COVID-19, but they, yeah, SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, for anyone curious, SARS is the illness that it actually causes in humans, which is sudden acute respiratory syndrome. Sounds like it. That sounds like our guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> okay, so it tells us the participants in the study, blah, 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 university, state-of-the-art analytical framework. Okay. This does not mean no changes have occurred. Mutations of no evolutionary significance accumulate and surf along millions of transmission events, like they do in all viruses. Some changes can have an effect. For example, the spike replacement, which has been found to enhance transmissibility and certain other tweaks of virus biology scattered over its genome. On the whole, though, neutral evolutionary processes have dominated, McLean adds. The stasis can be attributed to the highly susceptible nature of the human population to this new pathogen, with limited pressure from population immunity and lack of containment, leading to exponential growth, making almost every virus a winner. <laughs> yeah, okay. this is this is honestly hitting a lot of pegs for me. I really like the application of really advanced technology to look at how a virus is going to evolve, and the concept of this virus just being totally ready to make the jump to humans is definitely really, really interesting to me. So I'm completely on board so far. All right, awesome. So we found a topic that interests us. We clicked on it. We liked the advertisement. So now we scroll to the bottom of this article and find the DOI, which should be underlined. And there it is. Indeed. Uh, quick disclaimer, though. Um, if you were trying to get into reading science, do not start with immunology articles. Um, like if this is like your first article ever, they are very packed with stuff. Oh, so should we perhaps maybe not choose this one then for our lesson? Oh, that's a good point. Um, probably not. All right, we're gonna go back then. Well, that was fun. Maybe we'll- My apologies. Your date though. This is, let's bookmark this one for maybe a future episode because this okay. is hashtag relevant. Thanks, Pete and Cheryl. <laughs> um, I like it. My bad about that as well. No, no worries. We're learning together. Ooh, okay. It's another one that jumps out to me. Is it the one about the unusual creature? The critically important antimicrobials in pets. Oh, wait, which one? Reducing the use of critically important antimicrobials in pets. Oh, you scrolled way down. Okay. Um, reducing critically important. This does not immediately strike out to me. Wild animals, thanks to first epigenetic clock for bats. What the hell is even that? Back the. That just hit an alarm bell. So we're gonna read that real quick. If that's okay with you. Bats. Sure. I really like bats. I love bats. Oh, this is cool. So have you heard of, of like the, the kind of like concept of, of epigenetics? Epigenetics. That's the evolution of a s- individual's genetics in their lifetime. Yes. And in certain cases, it can be heritable, which means that the change can influence um, offspring. But what they're basically saying in this study is that they can look at the way that mutations have occurred in their DNA to pretty accurately determine the bat's age in total. Okay. That's that's, oh, that's so cool. Look at all of these little bat faces. That's what jumps out to me. I do like bats. That one on the top right, its nose is its entire face, and I just like that a lot. But nose face. Hi. <laughs> the oh. nose faced bat. 
I love the one that's doing like a little smiley side eye. Like he looks like no oh. compliment, and he was like, "Thanks, friend." Bottom left guy. Yep. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, if we end up going with this one for the episode, I'll definitely post this in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Which bat are you? Tag yourself. <laughs> All right. So this one, um, both of us, because bats. Um, yes. Confusing diagram. So let's just jump right into what they say about it. The advertisement. Okay. Um, immediate problem. This they did not provide an accurate link. So if oh. we are going to do this article, damn. We have to okay, do a let's go bit. back. <laughs> I wanted to tag myself. Okay. It is possible to find the article in that way. It just takes a bit more time. But yeah. Yes. Okay. Now I do feel bad for for disregarding the critically important antimicrobials in pets. It just did not immediately grab me. But we can do that if you want to. Nah, I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the one that said uh, an unusual creature is coming out of winter slumber? Here's why scientists are excited. Uh, no, but that grabs my attention. Let's find it. It is the third one from the top. Oh, wow. Oh, look at him. Those big ol' eyes. Okay, an unusual creature is coming out of winter slumber. Here's why scientists are excited. Tell me, fizz.org. If you binged on high-calorie snacks and then spent the winter crashed on the couch in a months-long food coma, you'd likely wake up worse for wear. Unless you happen to be a fat-tailed dwarf lemur. Why am I not a fat-tailed dwarf lemur? <laughs> That's exactly what I want to do. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I did come out worse for wear. God damn. <laughs> oh, evolution gone it's, wrong it's in our case. does this little guy have for us? Oh, that makes sense. They live off the stored fat in their tail when they have to. That's the fat? Yeah. Animals that hibernate in the wild rarely do so in zoos and sanctuaries with their climate controls and year-round access to food. That makes sense. Hibernation is kind of a response to really, really, really crappy resources. Oh. In humans? (laughs) (laughs) In animals that are sort of genetically predisposed to do it. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do not put yourself in the torpor. You might not come back out of it. Okay, fine. All right. This squirrel-sized primate lives in the forests of Madagascar, where it spends up to seven months each year, mostly motionless and chilling. (laughs) Love love the regular. We're also starting to uncover Jared's biases here, because this is about a mammal, and that gives it negative points. Uh, It gives it positive points for me. Love we, can st- we can still look at it, but <laughs> anyway. All right, if it's we're cute. following Jared's process, this is disqualified because it's a mammal, but I'm here, so we're going to go further. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I have hel- I have also violated that rule uh, previously multiple times in the past, but <laughs> anyway. This is what I mean. Like, It's hard to give a general rule because my standards for picking stuff is so very subjective. Well, I think we're still learning together, which is beautiful. Yeah. All right, so based on the picture, the title, and the advertisement that is this blurb, I'm very interested. So I'm going to scroll down to the bottom and look for the DOI, which should be... There we go. And there it is. So you can click on that. And it's open access. The study is from 2021, um, because that's one of the things I always appreciate about the articles that you bring to the table, Jared, is they're always recent. Whereas when I'm going through PNAS... Sometimes I find things from 2013. 
Yeah, that's the problem with like the really, really, really scholarly ones. But the great thing about fizz.org as well is that they're basically uh, listed from newest to oldest. So, you know, like, like the further you're scrolling down, the further back in time you're going. Okay. Thank you. That's a helpful tidbit. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this article is open access, which is great. That means it's free, right? Yes, indeed. Lovely. Lovely. <laughs> <clears throat> It's, have um, it is posted lot. here on in nature on scientific reports a lot of authors we have marina b blanco lydia k green robert schopler that's a funny robert Schopler is funny do you no 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 dr schopler i do not um <laughs> kathy v williams danielle lynch jenna browning k wesler melanie simmons peter Klop Klopfer. we have a schopler and a Klopfer. Yeah, so this is an important part of uh, reading an article before making a podcast about it. This is something that I actually do, is I, I look up pronunciation guides for the author's names, because <laughs> we're just in the woods. Yeah, that is very, very good to do. But uh, hey, look behind the curtain, folks. Okay, so once we open the article, the title and the date published is at the top. This was published literally three days ago. Um, now I have a question for you, Jared. Yes. If the article was published three days ago, does that mean that the peers have not yet had a chance to review it, or does peer review happen before an article is published? Um, very, very uh, far before part, an, an article is published, and most of the time it gets rejected. Um, well, I, no, I shouldn't say it like that. The way I should say it is that the vast majority of the time a paper has to be edited in some way before it's published. There is... There's been very, very few cases where a scientist has, has sent a paper to be reviewed and they've come back with zero notes, which is, you know, part of the peer review process. But um, yes, so the there is... the peer review process happens before an article is published. That's what you're saying, right? Yes, in many more words than I probably had to. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Okay. I wonder how many people didn't know that. So even though this article was only published three days ago, lots of scientists have already seen it. Cool. Indeed. Especially, um, it's also... Because this is a uh, subset of nature, you know that their peer review process is going to be fairly strong. Um, knowing which journal is going to be peer reviewed and which one's not is also a really important thing. But you can, that's one of the easiest things to know. You can just type in that journal and then you can type in peer reviewed and you'll find a link that will either tell you that it is or it isn't. Oh, okay. So that's how you find out if a journal is actually peer reviewed. You type in to Google the name of the journal and peer reviewed and Google will tell you. Okay. Mm -hmm. but um, so nature is peer reviewed off the top of your head. Can you think of others that are peer reviewed? Um, anything from PNAS is usually going to, going to be peer reviewed. Anything that's published under the super corporation Elsevier is going to be peer reviewed. Um, science is always like that. A lot are, um, the problem is that when you're using something like Google scholar, there are going to be journals that slip through the cracks. So, you know, if you find one that way, which is a totally valid way to do it, just be careful the journal you're looking at. Oh, okay. So Google Scholar, not foolproof. So if not foolproof. you find something on Google Scholar and you're wondering if it's peer reviewed, uh, ask Jared. No, just kidding. Google it. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. Cool. So this one's from Nature. So we know it's already peer reviewed. We know it was published three days ago. Mm -hmm. If we scroll down, the first thing that I see after the, art, the, the authors and everything is the abstract. What's an abstract? The abstract is kind of like the, why is this important? Uh, let's give... The easiest way to think about it is they're generally going to have like one or two sentences from each section. 
and just giving like the super duper highlights of their paper. Sometimes they'll pose a question at the end, but that's usually safe for the discussion section. So if you want to get like the basic, basic gist of, of the article as the scientist put it, then read the abstract. Okay, so is the abstract what you usually read first? Usually, yes. I will generally go from top to bottom um, and stuff that I start to read but find that it's not really the most interesting, I will skip over. Like, I don't always cover the materials and methods in our, our episodes because what they're doing is just kind of like pretty bare bones analysis. But if it's a really, really interesting method of doing it, like in the uh, Snake Evolution episode, which I can't remember if we actually published... Um, then I will sort of expand on it. I don't remember if we published the snake episode either. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the abstract. Let me take a moment. Oh, it's pretty short. I can read this out loud. Okay. Yeah, they're always short. Oh, the abstract is always short. Good to know. Mm -hmm. They are obligated to make it short and concise. Nice. All right. In nature, photoperiod signals environmental seasonality and is a strong selective zeitgeber <laughs> okay <that laughs> this biological rhythms for animals facing seasonal environmental challenges and energetic bottlenecks daily torpor and hibernation are two metabolic strategies that can save energy in the wild the dwarf lemurs of madagascar are obligate hibernators hibernating between three and seven months a year in captivity however dwarf lemurs generally express torpor for periods far shorter than the hibernation season in madagascar We investigated whether fat-tailed dwarf lemurs housed at the Duke Lemur Center could hibernate by subjecting eight individuals to husbandry conditions more in accord with those in Madagascar, including alternating photo periods, low ambient temperatures, and food restriction. All dwarf lemurs displayed daily and multi-day torpor bouts, including bouts lasting around 11 days. Ambient temperature was the greatest predictor of torpor bout duration and food ingestion and night length also played a role. Unlike their wild counterparts, who rarely leave their hibernacula, (laughs) that's a word, and do not feed during hibernation, uh, dwarf lemurs sporadically moved and ate. While demonstrating that captive dwarf lemurs are physiologically capable of hibernation, we argue that facilitating their hibernation serves both husbandry and research goals. First, it enables lemurs to express it enables lemurs to express the biphasic phenotypes, fattening and fat depletion, that are characteristic of their wild conspecifics. Second, by renaturalizing dwarf lemurs in captivity, they will emerge a better model for understanding both metabolic extremes in primates generally and metabolic disorders in humans specifically. Interesting. All right, okay. what did you get from that, Jared? <laughs> um so this is what I was talking about of kind of like them putting the significance of their findings at the very bottom of the abstract, which is that they're playing on a very, very, very important uh, debate in sort of modern husbandry, which is that how, where should the line be between exposing an animal to its natural conditions and giving it a life that maybe the, the general public would deem, you know, better than the wild, but it sounds like they're arguing in this case that it should be the case where we're exposing them to their naturalized conditions as it's what they do in the wild. And not only that, but it would allow a better study of metabolic conditions in primates. Yeah. I like that. It's, this reminds me of, um, so as you know, I worked at an unnamed aquarium and we have a whole gallery that's all Amazon fish. Um, and in the Amazon, there's only the rainy season and the dry season. And in the dry season, basically fish in the Amazon don't really eat. And the researchers slash aquarists 
who took care of that gallery discovered that by not feeding the fish as much during half of the year, during when the dry season would be in the Amazon, they extended the fish's lives by years. Years? Years. Wow. (laughs) Even though it seems like it's mean not to feed fish for part of the year, because they've evolved in those conditions, those are the conditions that they're best suited for, which means they're going to have a better or longer life if you better replicate the wild conditions. Now, I do understand that in some situations this would not be the case, but it sounds like for fat-tailed lemurs, this is the case. Yeah, it's it's like a cautionary tale in, in, in imposing human standards on every aspect of other non-human animals' lives. Yeah. Yeah. Just because um, you like to eat all the time doesn't mean this lemur does, okay? Let him be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so first thing I would do after reading this is sort of prime myself for reading the article, which is basically take any terms that I did not know from the abstract and make sure I know them before I get into the article totally. Yeah, so I would um, pull out immediately photo period. What's a photo uh, period? <laughs> a photo period is generally like the cycle of daylight in... A period of time so like where the light touches throughout the day if these okay so like in boston in the winter the photo period is only four hours and in boston in the summer the photo period is like 10 hours no i i think that's a way of saying it but it's okay so we're assuming where would we we wanted to find the real answer I thought I knew this off the top of my head. Thank you for uh, teaching me that I did not. Uh, photo period. <laughs> you were going to search that up. Definition. Just going into and, Google right now? Just straight up Google? Yep. I usually type photo period, definition, biology. Because there ah, are a know. lot of uh, biology literal dictionaries that it will bring you directly to. I like that you include that you didn't just type photo period definition, but you also put biology. Because I bet this there's a lot of words that have different definitions in science than they do in, say, literature. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, probably the most important one being theory, which is yeah. po- possibly the top standard for a scientific concept, uh, whereas in popular culture, it is any half-baked idea that you could have just come up with. Mm-hmm. So it's really important when you're looking up terms to put biology or physiology or whatever science you're swimming in, in your Google search for the term. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we can see from looking it up was that you were completely right. Uh, photo period, yeah. uh, as according to Science Direct, which is a really, really good site, uh, is defined by uh, day length or the period of daily illumination received by an, an organism. So yeah, you were right on the money. Hell yeah. Okay, then what is a Zeitgeber? <laughs> <laughs> because they put that in quotes, I imagine they're, they're going to define it inside the article. But yes. I know um, it's German. Let's type that in as well. Zeit, Zeit means time. I don't Interesting. Know what means. Okay, so it's every part of an organism's life that compels it to follow the 24-hour cycle of our Earth. Oh, so it's a, a, an organism's attunement to the, the cycle of the sun. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Germany. <laughs> you guys are <laughs> additive words. All right, what's okay. next for you? So we probably don't need to go through and, you know actually we're not actually covering this article so we don't need to go through and define all of the terms but that gives us an idea of how we go through and define the terms that's fair enough after you've read the abstract once pulled out the terms you don't know googled them appropriately to find out what they mean then would you read the abstract again to make sure you understood it right the first time uh usually yes yeah anytime i read any any anytime i read an article i'm usually reading it at least twice all right, cool. So and that's a big, at least we defined all the terms. We read the abstract twice. The next thing down, as we scroll down this article is the introduction. What's the introduction? 
the introduction is sort of the why did we be compelled to feel compelled to do the study sort of like the background of their area of research maybe usually a couple things that don't actually matter but uh, this is speaking from 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 experience uh being a biology major in college mostly writing the introductions was sort of filling out the space because you, you didn't you've never done any extra any actual research yourself in my case it is not the case uh from scientists but it is still the general concept of let's fill the space but also explain why we're doing this okay so it's sort of the context around the article in the yeah. so it's not going to give you any any information that's in the article itself it's basically just telling you it's giving you context is that it right might, yeah it might give you a tiny bit of information but it's literally going to be like the last two or three sentences okay so maybe we come back to that after we read the next thing <laughs> um if we're talking about how i do it i do read the introduction first just because it generally has stuff that is just cool to know um okay but but it's important to remember that stuff in the introduction is not necessarily going to be covered in the article. Yes, I will say it's not going to be covered, but it might help you better understand it because you oh, okay, kind of cool. get where they're, where they're coming from. All right. You really don't have to commit any of it to memory, though. Okay, so yeah, the introduction is going to help you understand the article, but it's not something that's going to be covered in the article. Mm -hmm. All right. So this introduction is quite long. Yeah, it is. Wow, oh where does it end? <laughs> so in a pinch, you could skip the introduction. Am I wrong? <laughs> you could. And it looks like in this session, uh, in this style, that's another thing is that depending on the journal you're looking at, they have completely different standards for how an article is supposed to be structured. Based on the way that they did this, I can tell that they have combined their introduction and methods. Okay. Or... No, that's not really accurate either, because the methods aren't complete. Uh, they're complete, complete methods. They've stuck at the bottom of the article. But basically what they've done is what I would take from the methods in this case, which is like the bare bones of what they did. If you want to know exactly what they did to replicate their study, then you would go to the methods section. But I'm going to say for anyone that just has like a passing interest, if they do it this way, you don't have to read out after the um, discussion. Oh, okay. All right. Um... Okay, so after introduction, we have results mm -hmm. in that section. Yeah, um, this is going to be basically... So the results and discussion is also something that can sometimes be combined inside a paper, but they separated them in this. So basically how this is going to go is the results are going to tell you directly with no bullshit exactly what happened, and the discussion is going to talk about why those results matter and what they say about the broader concept. Love it. Okay. So... We know the abstract. We sort of skimmed over the introduction. Um, let me scroll down and see how long the results is. It's pretty long. It's got some figures in it, but it looks like it's all pretty important stuff. So I'm just going to read this out loud. We can cut it if we want to, but mm -hmm. all right. <clears throat> results. We confirm that dwarf lemurs at the DLC, which is the um, Duke Laboratory of no, Duke Lemur Center. The Duke it's Lemur really, really hard to separate that from downloadable content, but I'm trying real hard. Duke Lemur Center. I'm just going to call it this center every time Please. I say... <laughs> Thank you. Sure. We conform... Confirm. Results. We, we conform to lemurs. We conform lemur. Um, no. Results. We confirm that dwarf lemurs... No. <laughs> <laughs> we That's confirm right. that dwarf lemurs at the center can hibernate and express both short torpor bouts. Torpor meaning, like being not moving right yeah it's, it's like a 
Acute period of inactivity. Acute period of inactivity. Cool. We confirm that dwarf lemurs at the center can hibernate and express both short torpor bouts, less than 24 hours, and long torpor bouts, more than 24 hours. Indeed, dwarf lemurs were in torpor around 70% of the time between October 15th and February 10th. Wow. <laughs> um, so the short torpor bouts tended towards being more frequent in males than females. When compared by month, the number of short torpor bouts was significantly greater in October and November compared to later months. Uh, Ooh, this is another thing that that's good to use. Greater um, in November and December compared to other months. The longest individual torpor bouts were observed in January, with the exception of the individual Mo, who was <laughs> in study before the end of the month. Why? Tell me. Oh. <laughs> what if his name was Month, but they shortened it to Mo because he was taken out early? Oh, no! <laughs> um, what happened to Mo? Okay, so I was reading <clears throat> that results paragraph, but in parentheses, in between a lot of the stuff I was reading, we have a lot of, like, names and dashes and numbers that don't mean much to me. So that is actually what they mean by significance, which is another term that's a lot different uh, in science than it is in sort of pop culture. Um, basically, significance is a term of statistics. They're saying, basically, is this result actually explaining what's happening, or is it sort of just kind of like an anomaly? And what they're saying by it being significantly greater is that their data is supported by their statistical analysis to be valid. Oh, okay. Cool. That's what the P is. Their p-value always has to be less than 0.05 to actually be valid, and in every case you can see that it is. Oh, okay. That is something I just learned right now. There Great. you go. Great. So when it says like p equals 0 0.0144, they're proving that their p-value is less than 0.5, which means that it is statistically significant. Yes. It also means that you can generally ignore those numbers unless they say that the p-value was insignificant. Okay. Love it. P-value. Clash through all that bull****. Um, mixed in with this is also some figures. Figure one, figure two, etc. Um, the figures are basically visual representations of the data. Yes. And to save yourself the headache, do not look at the figures before you read the study, because it's it will actually tell you exactly the point in the results that that figure is trying to illustrate. Okay, so like, if you're not a, a picture person, you can actually get all of the information you need without looking at the figures, right? It's all in the text. The figures are just another way of looking at the same information. Exactly. Okay. All right. So we read through our results. Uh, we get context for the figures. We learn, we learn, we learn. <laughs> and <laughs> then we scroll down to discussion. What's mm -hmm. a discussion? The discussion is the why did we do this study and why do we deserve money to do another study? Um, cut, cutting it down to zero false. It's basically like, why are our results significant? What does this mean? Um, for anyone that's interested, what are the other avenues of research that these that these data points open up? It's basically a why does this matter? They're, okay. They're, they're pleading cool. their case. All right. <clears throat> so, for example, let me read a little bit of this discussion. By exposing members of the center's dwarf lemur colony to low ambient temperatures and flexible food restriction regimen, 
we demonstrate for the first time that captive dwarf lemurs are physiologically capable of sustaining months-long hibernation. As documented for their wild counterparts, longer torpor bouts occurred at lower ambient temperatures, and females showed longer torpor bouts than did males. There was an effect of night length upon torpor bout duration, for example, with longer torpor bouts in December compared to November, although the rooms were maintained at similar temperatures. This may suggest that regulatory mechanisms other than temperature-dependent circadian clocks may be at play. Okay, now this is another thing where they're sort of opening up that avenue of research. This is basically, this may suggest that other mechanisms are in play. Something's happening that we don't know what, but it's messing with the data. Okay, so in the discussion section, you'll find basically the questions that popped into the scientist's mind after they did their study. Like, we, we now learned this, but what we don't know is this, this, and this. These are the new questions that we have now that we know more. Because every time you learn something new, you also learn what you don't know. <laughs> exactly. And they can also sort of use it as a place to explain data that might look weird, but not actually weird in the context of the study. Okay, cool. Love it. All right, so we scroll down. They have a pretty long discussion. Let's not cover all of it, because again, we're just learning how to learn right now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> They're talking about the exciting possibilities for studying metabolic disorders in humans. Cool. And then we get down to methods. Yes. Um... So usually methods would be higher in a study, right? Again, it really depends. It's a lot of journals have really veered from that basic structure that that they uh, did teach me in college. But you just don't see, you see it, but you see it in a lot of different ways. And every single time you look at a different journal, they switch up the format. So methods tells you how they did the study, like the actual, the nuts and bolts of what they did in the lab or wherever they were to find this information. Um, kind of. So it. In the way that they formatted this paper, they do say how they ran the experiment inside the, the introduction also. What the methods of this section are um, is basically saying, like, if someone were to replicate this study, we need to list exactly how we did every single thing here so they can do it the exact same way and hopefully get the same results. Oh, that and that's sense? really important for, oh, what did you call it? There's a crisis about it. Reproducibility. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Cool. So the methods is sort of like a guide for other scientists. Yes, which means that for our case, we can generally, you should give it a small look. And if something in pops out at you, then you can talk about it, which I do. Um, most of the time, it's not worth talking about um, because not that it's not important, but I don't think it makes for good radio. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So like the method is, methods is really important if you're trying to repeat the study or if you're trying to basically peer review the study and find holes in it. But for our purposes, once something has been published in a journal like Nature, a lot of scientists have already looked at these methods. So those of us who are not scientists probably aren't gonna be able to look at these methods and find a flaw in the study. So basically we're just looking at the methods to find if there were any really cool parts, right? Yeah, yeah, like the word hibernacula, which I also like. Hibernacular, I like that too. Hibernacula. 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 <laughs> if I was a vampire, that would be my name. Hibernacula? I'd be nice. Now I'm thinking of a lemur with vampire teeth. I think that exists, actually. Ooh, a, a Hibernacula the lemur vampire. Someone needs to <laughs> watch that series. It'd be a great anime. 
<laughs> oh dear lord. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. So after, a great we get, after we're through the methods, after we're through the discussion, then we have references, which is basically just the other studies that were referenced in this study. Yeah. Yes. Um, also, if you look, if you pay, if you look real, real close, they will sort of list like superscripts of like numbers between. It looks like they cited about thirty papers for this study. Um, when they are basically when you see those numbers pop, pop pop up in the paper, those those hyperlinks, the information they're giving you is from that other paper. Okay. Yeah, just like we cited things in high school. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So basically, if I wanted to learn everything I could possibly learn about these fat-tailed lemurs, this is a list of resources I could turn to. It is. It's kind of like a really, 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 really much better Wikipedia sources. Okay, so yeah. So if you ever do find an article on fizz.org and you're like, wow, I just discovered my life's work. This is where you look. <laughs> yeah yeah cool. we can put it that way yeah or for someone who's interested in you know getting into the sciences if you were reading your first scientific article and you were like this is a really interesting field maybe i want to study this this would be a good place to look to see what kind of work is being done in that field if you want to go that way i would definitely go back to fizz or eureka alert and sort of give a little buzzword for for, for your search because because if you do it that way then you'll find articles that fit that exact search term all right good to know Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Then we get to acknowledgments, which is just thank you to people. <laughs> yes. <So> further. <laughs> um, yep, it is also, it can be important to also look at the ethics declarations. Um, this is where they can announce any conflict of interest in their study, if they can list that they were sort of published or funded by like a, like basically like a soda company funding a study that sugar is good for you. All right, so it is actually important to look at the affiliations and the ethics declarations. Yes. Now, I've never actually seen a paper where they've had competing interests be published, but I guess if it's there, it's happened. So, for example, if this was an article, let's say, about how fossil fuels aren't actually bad for the climate, and then we scrolled down to affiliations and uh, ExxonMobil was listed. You can probably throw this article in the web trash. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, okay, cool. That's good to know. Indeed. Um, like there's no, there's no baddies. There's, exactly. These are just the Duke Lemur Center and the Department of Biology at Duke University, which is all pretty above board. <laughs> One can hope. Yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've never been there. Okay, cool. Um, and then we have rights and permissions, which is where it tells us that this is an open access article, which we love. Yes, indeed. And when Sci-Hub is working again, we can, uh, you know, exploit that source. Yeah, there we go. Stay tuned, friends, for our next, um, what are we calling this? Get learned. Get literate? No. Get. <laughs> That's kind of bad. <laughs> what are we calling it? I thought we were doing get learned. Get learnt. Thank you. All right, cool. <laughs> well, this was helpful for me. I feel more confident moving forward to find the next. I episode. hope so. I don't feel like I taught you very much, but I do. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> Actually, helpful. It's going to be a lot easier. You have cut down my process for finding an article by like at least two hours just now. Well, that makes me happy. Okay, cool. Yeah, because uh, PNAS is it just doesn't have everything. It just it does have the name but not much before yeah. that. I need more than penis in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Should we end it on that note? 
I think we should. All right. Thank you so much. Um, for those of you who are listening, I hope that you got learned like I did this week. And um, if you like this episode, if you like the podcast in general, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. That helps other people find our podcast so they can get learned too. Tell your mom, tell and, your dad, tell your class. Yeah, coach. tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your cat, tell your friends, tell your wife. I don't know who's in your life, but tell them. Um, and marry then marry again, someone and tell them about it. Sure. You can get married if you want. No, I'm not going to help you. If you really like us, if you really, if you like, like us, then please also follow us on Instagram, science underscore in underscore podcast, and on Facebook, science and podcast. And then you can also subscribe to our host, the magazine Science in Pictures, which is a really awesome publication um, where our friend Becca, who is an amazing visual artist, translates new scientific research into comics. So yeah, get about it. Be about it. We're about it. And we're going to go. Okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, goodbye.